step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height in the hat, put it all in the hat. Hello and welcome back to Hat Radio. My name is Avram Rosenzweig and this is episode 17. I'm very delighted and deeply honored to have with me uh, someone who is very auspicious in nature, an icon, I think, in Canada. Oh, settle down. Settle down. Yeah, it's too much already, isn't already. it? I know, already. I know. Okay, let's backtrack <laughs> a little bit. He's a jerk. Just, no. just, just say a guy I've known for a long time. All right, so you probably know the, probably know the, uh, the voice. His name is Steve Pakin. Steve, thanks for being with us. Delighted to be with you. Yeah. So far. So far, so good, eh? Right. <laughs> so I do want to tell you, and, and this is, it sounds a little obsequious, and I accept that, but uh, I've known you for a long time, and I've done my due diligence uh, prior to this interview, um, man, you are accomplished. You've done a lot of stuff. Well, those are two different things. I, I, I would agree with you. I have done a lot of stuff. I don't know how accomplished that makes me, but I have done a lot of stuff. That's Wait, true. Do, do you, okay, so listen. So you've, you've been on the air for 30 years plus, right? Yeah. You've produced documentaries, written five books. Seven. So, is, it, is that up to seven? I love, by the way, that you did one on hockey. I love that. Yes, that was that takes well, balls. That was the well. That was a lot of fun. Was it tremendous? Are you kidding? A guy like me who's who loves hockey, play, I still play hockey, and yeah. um, to have a chance, basically for a year in my spare time, you know, while trying to do my full time job. Yeah, just bouncing around hockey rinks and talking to players and writing oh, yeah. a book. I mean, yeah, that was tons of fun. Oh, it must be awesome. You spoke to John Bellavo. Because you quoted him. Yeah, I've met Jean Beliveau before, but yeah. uh, I, we didn't do a formal interview for the book, but I had met him and talked to him once in the past. Okay, so so you did the documentaries, you did the books, you've done a radio, you've done television, and so much more. And, and I, my question to you is a very real question, because we live in Canada. Success in Canada, I think, is looked at differently than it would be in America. We're less driven. Would that be true? I don't know that we're less driven. Yeah. But... I think there's something about making it big in the United States which requires you to adore and or worship fame. And I don't know that we suffer from that in Canada. I know I certainly don't. So that might be one of the differences. I've never had any desire to go work in the States. I went to school, uh, you know, I went to university in the States for one year. So I lived down there and I have a pretty good sense about what that's like, even though it's how many years now? 37 years in the rearview mirror. Boston University, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I don't have any illusions about living down there, and I've never wanted to live or work down there. So you never had illusions about going down the States. Have you been headhunted? No. Are you surprised for that down you there? No, yeah. No. Why would I be? Right, right. No. I, uh, all the things I care about are in Canada. All the issues that I know about the best are in Canada. Right. Um, my family's here. The place I've wanted to try to have some modest impact is here. Um, you know, I like, I think most Canadians, I love vacationing in the United States. I love traveling in the United States. Yeah. I don't have any desire to live down there or at work all, down there. At all. None. Zero. Never so, have. So when you're rising up on the tree of, I'll call it success, ambition, call it what you like, 
does it just keep on going? Does the tree get bigger and bigger and bigger? Or at some point you think, oh man, I got to get out of Canada. Oh no, never thought that. And never really, as ridiculous as this sounds, never had a five-year plan or a 10-year plan or I want to be doing this right. by, I'm, by the time I'm such an age. I got into the canoe when I was 22 years old and I just thought, let's see where this goes. And I just thought if I keep, if I put my head down and I do my best, you know, I'll, I will enjoy the ride. And that's what's happened. You, you seem incredibly planful, by the way. I mean, again, when you take a look at the trajectory of your career, you started out as a radio person, you did TV, and eventually you, you started doing books and you started doing documentaries. As I said before, that looks like a planned trajectory, but it's not. It is not. It, it, it has not been. Uh, you know, I started in 1982 yeah. uh, as a city hall reporter at CHFI and what was then called CFTR, now 680 News. And I filed pieces to those two FMAM brother-sister stations. And everything that has happened since then is just a case of just keep doing something, keep working, keep trying, keep doing your best, and let's see what comes along. Yeah. And that's, that's, the only, that's the only plan. What, what, was it, is it fun? Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding? It's fun, eh? You look like you're having doing fun. Doing this job? You look like you're well, having fun. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's fun for a bunch of reasons. Number one, I, I think I'm the most curious person you know. Right. So if you can get a job where uh, wetting your curiosity about how the world works is what it's all about, uh, then this is a very good job to have. I have been blessed to be able to work at TVO for going on 26 years now. Uh, I love the mission of the place. I love the people I work with. So that's been a, a very good marriage, a very good fit. And um, I've had a chance to meet some wonderful people along the way and do some interesting and different things. And that, uh, you know, add it all up and it's worth getting out of bed in the morning. I, I watch some of your YouTube videos and uh, you very often have a smile. It's almost like you have a natural smile on your face. Do you know that about yourself? No. I was watching the interview you did on Rwanda, which is a, a dismal, terrible topic. You handle it very well, by the way. At some point, you actually reached out to one of your guests who were from Hamilton, which is where you're from. And I want to ask you about that. And you put your hand on her hand. Do you remember that? Of course. Well, she, she was describing the guilt she feels yeah. at surviving when uh, others in her family did not. Yes. And she started to cry. And yeah. it was a, just a, you know, it was a, a, a sad, beautiful, authentic, genuine moment. And it just felt like, I'm not sure I've ever done that to any guest ever before. Right. I was going to ask you that. Exactly. I don't think so. It just felt How did like, it, did it feel right? It just felt like the, the right thing to do at that moment. Would a producer, let's say a new producer say, hey, Steve, don't do that. You're getting too close with the guest. No one said anything. Yeah. So in yeah. my business, no news is good news. How did you feel uh, during that interview? How did you feel inside? Um, I don't mind saying that most programs I do, doesn't they don't necessarily elicit an emotional reaction. But that one sure did. And it did because I'm, you know, I was surrounded on both sides by people who had survived uh, the most appalling genocide that you and I have been alive for. Yes. And of course, I could not help but hear echoes of the Holocaust uh, during the course of the discussion. Of which you mentioned, by the way. Yes. 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 And so that show was different. That one definitely registered a 10 out of 10 on the emotion scale, for do, sure. Do you come close to tears? 
you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Have I, you ever I cried? The, I let the cried? thing speak for itself. So uh, whether you ever the, cried on air? On air? Yeah. I don't think so. But would you be okay if you did? I think we're in the business of telling authentic stories and trying to achieve authentic moments. Yes. There's way too much BS and crapola in all of the media, particularly social media. So if you can have an honest conversation with anybody about anything, and if it elicits that kind of reaction, uh, sure. Okay, good. Oh, you'd be okay with it? Sure. Now, you've done some teaching, right? A little bit, yeah. Are you a chancellor? There's two different things there. Yes. I'm, yes, there are two I, different things. I, yeah. I have, I'm, I'm chancellor at Laurentian University in Sudbury. That is so cool. With whom I've had a relationship for a long time, and my wife's family has. And then I'm a visiting professor at Ryerson as well. How is it teaching? It's fantastic. I, I love the whole post-secondary scene, I have to tell you. Do you? Well, I had such a good experience myself at U of T. Gosh, I started at U of T 40 years ago. Yeah. And it was, it was a wonderful fantastic post-secondary experience right. and then went off to Boston U for, for a year and that was great for different reasons but that was great that as well. That was for your master's. Yeah, yeah, in broadcast journalism. And just I think the chance to um, I, I'm very curious to see how this next generation is going to do. Yeah, They've got it in some respects tougher than we did because the industry that they're trying to get into is just blowing up right now. It's just so disruptive and explosive and you know, when I graduated from university, uh, everybody I know who graduated from journalism in university knew what they wanted to do. Right. Right. They wanted to get a job at a legacy media, so a radio station, a TV station, a magazine, a newspaper, whatever. And and most of us wouldn't, but some of us would. And off to the races we go. Yeah. These folks are graduating into the teeth of an industry that is half as big today as it was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. They are shedding jobs by the day. Mm -hmm. And yet they're still there trying to get an education, trying to find out if there's a role for them in journalism. And to the extent that I can be at all helpful in, you know, making that path a little easier, um, I'm trying to do that. But I don't envy where there are right now. I'm very happy that I thankfully started my uh, my post-post-secondary life, uh, you know, 38 years ago as opposed to now. I think it's way more difficult. Are now. you happy you have a job today? Oh, are you kidding? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not sure there's a day... You're going to think this is false modesty. It is not. I'm not sure there's a day that goes by when I don't walk into my office and put my backpack down on the ground right. and boot up my computer and at some point in the day don't think to myself, boy, I'm happy to be working here. That's nice. Yeah. That's very. nice. And why do you feel that way? Because I'm grateful. And I know how many other good, talented people there are who are out there who have not been as either lucky or whatever. Uh for some reason, they've rolled the dice and it didn't come up snake eyes or seven, lucky sevens or whatever. And, and fortunately for me, it did. And I'm, I, I never forget that. Are you competitive? In what respect? Um, will you work really, really hard to make sure you get that position and subsequently he won't? I'm not competitive in that way. Yeah. I, I, I don't want my success to happen at anybody else's expense. Yeah. Am I competitive in terms of trying to put the best product out there? Am I competitive in terms of trying to tell the best story possible, do the best interviews possible, write the best columns possible, cover events the best? Yes, in that respect, I am competitive. But I don't want to beat anybody else for accolades or any of that. That's that's just not really on my radar. Well, you were really humble 
when you did the International uh, Federation of Authors, I believe it was, you talked about your book, Bob Ray introduced you and you got up yeah. there, you said, you know, really the table should be the other way around, Bob. You know, <laughs> he, you were I, humbled about him introducing you. He, He's a cool guy, by the he, way. Yes, he interviewed me on a book I'd, I'd written called Pakin and the Premiers. Right, right. Which basically describes my relationships with, uh, I think, the last nine premiers going all the way back to John Robarts in the 1960s. And... Of course, my inclination is to be curious about him. I can't imagine why he'd right. be curious about me. And he started to ask me questions, and then right. I started to ask him questions. Yes. And he interrupted me by saying, no, 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 that's not how it works here. That's right. I ask the questions. You have to answer them now. Yeah. And on a few occasions during the course of that interview, I kind of lost my I, I lost my way and started to ask him questions, and he had to remind me, no, 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 we're not doing <laughs> it that way this time. So, so Sorry, finish. I was just going to say, but that's – typical. I'm far more interested in learning something about somebody else than pontificating, as you've got me doing here, about whatever's going on in my life. About Bob Ray, I'm watching him and he sits like William F. Buckley, sort of that crouch that leans off to the left Mm -hmm. on Passover. We do that on Passover. (laughs) Um, He says a lot of ums. His points are very poignant. He's a very wise person. Just curious, what happens to veteran politicians? They get very wise, very postured, just different re- than regular folks. Does that resonate with you at all? Yeah. I, you know, I, how do I put this? I wouldn't want to come to any tremendous overarching conclusions yeah. about quote unquote veteran politicians. Yeah. Some of them uh, have a terrific impact on the world. I'd put Bob Ray in that category. He's, he's made his mark. He had the misfortune of taking over the government of Ontario at the time of the worst recession since the Great Depression. Yes. But I, I have no hesitation in saying I've always been impressed with his intellect and with his passion and with his drive to do good works in the world. And and he's had a very consequential post-premiership. You know, he's gone all over the world to yes. try to make the world a better place. Yes, he has. So I take my hat off to guys like that and Jimmy Carter, you know, who's another one I'd put in that category of, you know, of people who, despite seeing the end of their political careers, and of course, Mr. Ray did have a, a political career after being Premier of Ontario. He frankly helped save the Liberal Party of Canada for yes. a while. Uh, I, I'm, I'm impressed with people who, who say, I still have a contribution to make, maybe not in elective politics, and I want to see how I can make it. So there is that category of veteran politician. But then there are also people who just want to walk away from it and lead a normal life and, and just disappear. And that's okay, too. Like George Bush. He rides horses on his farm ostensibly, right? Yeah, George W. Bush does not, he's not out there giving a lot of interviews. He's right. not out there as right. a critic of uh, his successors. He's uh, doing his own thing. You know, he's painting. He's riding horses. He's I don't even know if he's got any board appointments, frankly. I don't know what he's doing. That's right. He's painting. Yeah. So you're from Hamilton, Ontario. Yes, sir. Uh, for our listeners in Poland, we have two. <laughs> um, Hamilton, Ontario is about an hour, 45 minutes, depending on the traffic. When I was a kid, it was 45 minutes. Right. Now it's more like an hour and a half. So west Bri- of Toronto. Bryna, who's a mu- mutual friend of ours, she w- goes out and works there every day in the family business. I said, how often does it, how much time does it take you to get out there and back? She goes, anywhere from an hour to three. Yes, that's right. Because of the traffic. I used to... Uh, obviously, as a Hamiltonian, I'm a big Ticat fan. My family still has tickets for the Ticat games. I, unfortunately, several years ago, had to say to my folks, if the game's on Friday night, mm-hmm. include me out. I just can't get, you know, game time 7, 7.30, there's not a chance in, I was going to say a bad word. but Well, you can swear on podcasts. Well, yeah, they, they do do that oh, on Oh, yeah, and okay. I do swear. Do you uh, swear at all? Uh, not on podcasts. No, but out, on the air. Uh, uh, well, you're playing hockey, right? 
sure. Um, we're sitting here taping this on the eve of Game 7 of the Leafs and the Bruins. Correct. If the Leafs don't win tonight, and I see no reason why they would. You will swear. They, yes, I can guarantee that. <laughs> Call me when you do. <laughs> I can commit to you here and now that there will be some blue language heard if they do not win tonight. How much of you is, is Hamilton? Oh, um, the largest part. Uh, and it's weird because I lived in Hamilton the first 18 years of my life, yeah. and now I haven't lived in Hamilton for 40 years. Right. But if I'm anywhere, people ask me where I'm from, I still say Hamilton. My folks still live there. My brother's in Burlington, which is close enough to Hamilton. Uh, I still feel like a Hamiltonian. Do you know what I mean by that? Yes, because I'm from Kitchener. And you still feel like someone uh, from Kitchener? They say, you know, you can't take the Kitchener out of a kid, you know? Yeah. yeah. I feel very at home when I go back to Hamilton. I feel very at home in Toronto. But, uh, yeah, there's something about... I'm glad I wasn't raised in Toronto, if that doesn't sound too why, why, weird. Why is that? I like the fact that I'm from a smaller city. I like the fact that I had a blessedly normal upbringing. Yeah. I like the fact that, that uh, I grew up with a bit of a chip on my shoulder. Right. Um, seeing Toronto in the distance. Yes. And, and, and wanting to... You talked about being competitive earlier. Uh, the fights I got into with friends at summer camp about whether the Argos were better than the Thai Cats or you know whether it was better to live in Hamilton or Toronto, so I like that. I like, uh, and I also like the fact that, you know, and I guess I don't mean this in an overly critical way, but maybe in a bit of a critical way. Right. People who are born and raised and live their whole lives in Toronto, I'm sure, are very nice people, but they may not know the rest of the province or country very well. Yes. And I think it's it's certainly been a, a good thing for the work I do. And just as a more, you know, better-rounded person, uh, not to have lived my whole life in Toronto. It's better that I, that I came from somewhere else. I have, a, I think, a great relationship and great memories of Hamilton. I've lived in Toronto 40 years, but my wife's from Sudbury, and I'm Chancellor at Laurentian. We've got a cottage, you know, two hours west of Sudbury. So I have these relationships with other parts of the province, which I think is all to the good. Now, you, you went to Hillfield Strathallen College. Yes. Is that correct? And what I've garnered from my uh, readings is that you still have a relationship with the dean there or the chief, the heads of the school? Yeah, it's head of school. So so, yeah. so when you walked in, we talked about that for a second. And what I took away from that is that you're very much about relationships. Well, like, I mean, you graduated in 1978. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would put it this way. I would say that there are kind of three absolutely fundamental uh, influences in my life. Yeah. First would be my parents. The second would be that school you just mentioned. The third would be the summer camp I went to for seven years, which my brother went to, which my father went to uh, back in the 1930s. What was it called? It doesn't exist anymore. It's called Camp Mazinaw. Yes. It's near Bonneco Provincial Park, um, just north of Belleville. And those three things uh, are 99.9% .9 responsible for whatever it is that I am today. My folks, my school, my summer camp. Your mother was a feminist. The way Bryna uh, defined her was someone who was very, very uh, helpful to the city, uh, very driven to make things better. She said your father's a bit more chilled. But the sense I got about your parents were that they were out there. They, they, they really put themselves out to make people's lives better. Yes. Yeah. My folks were, were very deeply involved in the, in the life of Hamilton, in the life of Ontario and Canada. Um, when there was a big civic-oriented job to be done, my mom got the call. 
uh, when the current prime minister's father was prime minister, and he came to Hamilton in 1972 for a visit. She chaired the committee to organize oh, that visit. Did she? There was a Grey Cup in Hamilton in 1972. She chaired the committee that organized that Grey Cup. She was, oh my gosh, how much tape have you got here? Like my mom was a, she was the chair of Atomic Energy of Canada Limited. She was the chair of the Ontario Council of Health. She was the chair of the Ontario Council on University Affairs. She was a, a board member at McMaster University. She was a chair of governing council at the University of Toronto. She was on the board of Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick. Um, I, I mean, I, at the risk of boring people, I could go on. She was a devoted uh, volunteer for numerous causes. She built the Hamilton Place. She was the chair of Hamilton Place. That's exactly right. Yes. Uh, and, and proudly and appropriately wears the Order of Canada. She deserves it. Like you. Okay, <laughs> but she deserves. Wait, it. wait. Why did you say? Why did you say it like that? Well, she deserves it. I, I, I oh, have. You don't think you deserve it? Of course not. How come? Uh, what for? Well, you've you've made a lot of people happy. A lot. You've brought out some of the f- the fiber and the fabric of this country and this province. I think I think what you've done is magnificent. I don't. I just nominated somebody for the Order of Canada, and I understand the process and why particular people are nominated. I wouldn't say for a second, Steve Pakin. I'd say, yeah, that makes sense. How was it when you went up and got the button? I will never forget it because I walked up and David Johnston, the Governor General, yeah. is sitting right there, and yeah. they're reading off this list of whatever, and I'm looking at him and I'm mouthing to him. Yeah. I have no idea why I'm here. Is that what you said? And he looks back at me and says, I do. And that did two things. It calmed me down because I, I truly, Avram, there, there were people that I got my Order of Canada with who were looking for the cure for cancer. Yes. There yes. were people that I got my Order of Canada with who have employed tens if not hundreds of thousands of people and allowed people to lead lives of dignity and done good works in the community. And they're just, you know, I look around and I'm saying to myself, what the hell am I doing here? And the governor general gave, you know, he put me at ease and in doing so, he almost, like I almost wanted to cry when he said that. It just was very, it's just a lovely thing for him to have said. Who else accepted it when you were there? I, I've heard from people, well, Neil Young was there when I got my button, you know? <laughs> Isn't that funny? I mean, it's a, it's a good size class. There's probably, I don't know, 50 or 75 right. of us or something like that. And and as as weird as it sounds, I don't remember much more about that day than that. Yes. Um, George Cope from Bell got it the same day. Sheldon Kennedy, who's done such important yeah. work on child abuse, um, he got it the same day. Jim Leach, who's a chancellor at Queens, uh, he got it the same day. Anyway, I could go on, but the fact is, there's so little about the day I actually remember because it's such a blur. And again, I'm thinking to myself, I just, I just don't belong here. Well, you know, Moses told God, I, I'm not the right leader. I don't deserve it. Let, God let, said, you, you know, that's exactly why you're getting it. I'm not comparing you to Moses. <laughs> you just did, so but, don't, but, do but, that. don't do that. <laughs> okay, I retracted. <laughs> but here's, here's my question to you, though, is are there times where you put your head down on your pillow and you say to yourself, Steve, good job today, man. You really made a difference in this province or this country or this world. Never. Ne- never, never. Never happened once. Even after that Rwanda interview? Like you gave the people, you said it took you a lot of courage to be here. You facilitated 
that for them and you made it very peaceful for them to talk about their feelings. Is that not making a change to the world? Uh, maybe, but I'm just, that's my job. I was just doing my job. Yeah. And by the time the head hits the pillow, I've just probably finished an hour and a half of research yeah. about tomorrow. So I'm constantly forward looking. Once, once it's done, it's done. And I now have to think about what's next. That's how it works. Your dad is a chilled sort of fellow? My dad is the youngest, funniest person I know. Is he? <laughs> he he's 85 years old, and he's, you know, he was always a very chill, um, <laughs> uh, always a very chill guy growing uh, as I was growing up, and he's even more so now. Yes. He just has so much fun. He's D- a, does he? He's a great, great man. Yeah, he plays a clarinet in a band. And he travels with my mom all over North America, sometimes to Europe, to go see jazz. And he still works full time for a living. What? What? He's a developer. Well, you know what? He he used to have the family steel business. He was third generation in the family steel business in Hamilton. And then the recession of the early '90s really kicked the crap out of it. So he had to close it down. And he decided at that point to start doing for a living something that had always been a hobby of his which is he buys, refurbishes, and flips railway cars. All different kinds of railway cars. Oh. And, you know, when when November comes, he takes his laptop and he goes down to Florida with my mom, and he does that in Florida for the rest of, until April when it's time to come home. Do you know anyone so, else who does that? I don't. But if you need a locomotive, Avram, Thanks. just go to locomotives.net and he can set you up. So I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but he also collects small trains, am I correct? Uh, not so much. That's not really, that's not so much his thing. He's, he, he deals with the big ones, the big quarter million dollar. That is so cool. Locomotives, cabooses. And you know, I mean, the, 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 to me, the best example is there is this community center in the north end of Hamilton uh, in one of the most if I can put it this way, godforsaken neighborhoods in the country. Uh, you've got to be tough to grow up in that neighborhood. There's a lot of, there's just a lot of issues, a lot of difficulties in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And my dad was part of a group that took over an old abandoned school and helped renovate it and helped get services in there and got, uh, got a train to plunk on the front lawn of this community center it's called the Eva Rothwell Resource Center, and they turned that train into a library. And now you can go to the Larry Pakin Literacy Express wow. on the front lawn of wow. the Eva Rothwell Resource Center, and kids and their parents, because a lot of you know a lot of kids have a tough time because their parents are first generation, they don't have literacy skills, and so on. Uh, anybody can go in there for free and borrow a book, and it's a and it's a wonderful thing. And I'm I like could not be prouder of his uh, contribution to making all that happen. You're close with your dad. I'm close with both my parents. Yes, I am. The camp made a big difference to your life. How so? Well, that was a summer camp my dad went to back in the 30s, and I guess it was a bit of a, a hope of his that his boys would go there. My brother and and I, and we did. And I really took to it, I think, more than my brother did. He was more into sports. He went off to basketball camp after that. But I went there right. three years as a camper, two years as a tripper, two years as a counselor. I am having lunch later this week on Thursday with 20 guys who I went to that summer camp with 45 years ago. That's awesome. And um, and it was just, it's one of these places where it just helped me grow up a lot, you know? Yeah. 
taught you responsibility, taught you how to chop wood, yes. taught you how to paddle a canoe, which I still do every summer. Uh, so yeah, that was a beautiful thing. Someone once told me that, yes, yeah, school is, of course, extremely important. As you mentioned before, it was one of the influences on your life. But according to this person, a bigger influence was camp, hmm. right? I can see that. In some respects, you know, the, the camp I went to, we were there six weeks. And, and of course, you, you, you know, it's six weeks 24-7 with the same small group of kids all the time, whether you're a counselor or whether you're a camper. So you learn a lot of very important skills, never yeah. mind the skills I just talked about, but, you know, how to get along with people, how to work in a team, how to understand people's insecurities, how to deal with the weakest link in the chain, uh, how to lead, how to follow. There's times where it's important to get out of the way and follow as well. Yes. And, and all, of the, all of that in an atmosphere that we do better than anybody in the world. The Ontario camping scene is the best anywhere in the world. Are you saying that emotionally? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm saying because it's an empirically provable fact. Is it? Without question. Without question. We have the, we have the, the gorgeous nature here. Yes. We have uh, summer camps that are third and fourth generation that are operating in the province of Ontario. And it is, it's magnificent. And, you know, anybody who has an opportunity to send their kids to a summer camp Preferably a Taylor Staten summer camp. I, I think that that approach, you know, canoeing, sailing, swimming, woodwork, you know, the the the, the real basics about how to make it in the bush. Uh, if you can do that, if you can give your kid that experience, yeah. uh, I'm not sure there are many more important or worthwhile things you can do for your kids than that. You have four kids. I do. Did they all go to camp? Oh yeah, I got one of them still there. One do of them's you? one of them's young enough still to be going. And, and what was their take on it? Did they love it as much as you did? Well, the great, you know what? I have no regrets in life. I, I, you know, you just, you don't get your time back. So there's no point. I think there's no point. Every, every misfortune, it was a learning experience and led to something. But, but if I have one real regret, I have three sons, none of whom got to go to the summer camp that I or my father or my brother went to. Because it closed down. Because it closed down. And as a result, they had to go to other camps. And their, their, their summer camp experiences were, were you know i'll let them talk about it It was fine as far as as far as it went but oh my gosh i wish they had got a chance to go to camp mazanaw which to me is unparalleled in the summer camp pantheon uh 60 boys avram can you imagine a summer camp a small in the camp. middle of nowhere yeah 60 boys yeah no boys camp by the by the time that summer is open is over you know every single kid in that camp by name You've made friendships, well, as I indicated, that last a lifetime, right? My buddies and I are still getting together all these yeah. years later. Yeah. And um, and it's just, it's, ugh, I can't say enough about it. And I just wish the, the boys had been able to go. Were you shy ever at any point in camp or otherwise? You seem very effusive. You've got me talking about things that, that no one ever asks me about and that I have just fantastic memories of. So I guess you're you're bringing it out. This is what I'm interested in. Like everybody else will talk about the Steve Pakin who interviews John Robarts. And that is <laughs> Never met of... John Robarts. Actually. Oh, you never did? Never. Man, well, you wrote a lot about him. I was a year old when he became premier. Oh, that's true. That's so true. I never did meet him. I never even saw him. Yeah. From your take on him, you were fascinated by what he had the ability to accomplish. I, I was fascinated by a Shakespearean story, which, which goes basically like this. One of our great premiers ever 
hand on the tiller of the province of Ontario during our best decade. Yes. He was lost to suicide. His son was lost to suicide. Oh. His first wife drank herself to death. Uh Oh. His daughter died of cancer in her 50s. A Shakespearean tragedy. So that's that's why I was fascinated by the Robart story and why I so much wanted to write a book about it and tell it. And you did. And I did. You know, it's an interesting thing about interviewing. Tell me if you concur with this, because I have questions about your technique of interviewing. Do you find that someone makes a statement, you just talked about camp, and uh, that you can go down three different roads based (laughs) on what you just said? And you have to, as an interviewer, in this case me, I remind you of that, by the way, <laughs> like Bob Ray did. Um, I have to think very quickly. Okay, now am I going to ask Steve about canoeing, you know? <laughs> or am I going to ask Steve, why did the camp close? Like, there's so many different directions you can go. Is that your experience as well? The fact of the matter is, yeah. every time you or I do an interview, we have a thousand decisions to make. Correct. In rapid fire succession. And I, I was interested in the fact that, that um, as we were talking about Camp Masnaw, you mentioned John Robarts, and that got me into a different headspace, and yeah. you decided to go there. Yeah. Now, you could have left it alone, and you could have gone back to the summer camp thing or, or gone in a different direction entirely, but you went to Robarts, which is fine. There's no right or wrong, right? Right. I mean, you just, you just go where you go, and I was happy to follow. And it, it, the, the, the best metaphor I've ever heard for doing interviews is, I, you know, you won't be surprised to hear this. It's a summer camp metaphor. Yeah. You know, we're in the canoe together. Okay. Uh, you're the interviewer. So you're steering and I'm paddling. That's how it works. And if the canoe gets a hole, we're both affected by it, right? <laughs> True enough. True so, enough. So, so, you know what the best thing for a hole in a canoe is? Uh, Again, this is another thing I learned at summer camp. The best thing for a hole in a yeah, canoe. If you're on a canoe trip and, and you're doing rapids and you crack a rib in the canoe and you got a leak, what's the best thing to plug that leak? Uh, a wet shirt? The best thing, if you have it, is peanut butter or ozonol, which you should have in your first aid kit to cover up wounds, you know? So, yeah, you could put some peanut butter and then a piece of tape, uh, you know, like a gauze or something on top of the peanut butter, and then tape it down with duct tape, and you should be good to go. You put some benalin in that or something? (laughs) I don't think you need that. So, does an idea for a book come to mind, and then you set about writing it? Because I've looked at your books... And I thought to myself, okay, I think three or four of them are about Ontario politics. Yeah. Right? One of them is about hockey. I covered five of them, but you've done seven. So how do, how do you arrive on what you're going to write about? Because there's a whole plethora of things out there. Again, you assume that there's some kind of plan afoot, and there really was no plan. Yeah. I wanted to write, at some point in my life, a book. I didn't know when. Uh, I didn't know if it would ever happen, but it was on my bucket list. Why? Um, again, just uh, part of the part of the panoply of different things that I just wanted to try to experience in life. You know, I wanted to host a television program. Yeah. I have been able to do that. I've wanted to be a beat reporter. I was a city hall reporter and a Queens Park reporter. I wanted to write a book at some point, so I've done that. I wanted to um, be a moderator at an election debate at some point, and yeah. I've been lucky enough to do that. Uh, so you know, it just these things come along. I got a letter out of the blue one day, this is about 20 years ago, from somebody, from a literary agent who said, have you ever wanted to write a book? And I said, yes, coincidentally. Yes. And they said, well, why don't you write up a proposal of the book that you want to write and I'll shop it around. And I said, 
no point. I won't waste your time and mine, because the book that I've got kicking around in the back of my head is a book based on one thing that former Premier Bill Davis said to me 15 years earlier. Oh, now they're intrigued. What's this all about? Right, right. I said, I was doing an interview with Mr. Davis after his time as Premier was over, just sort of a, you know, it's a, a year later, let's check in with Bill Davis. And we did the interview, and frankly, it was not a fabulous interview. I don't think I got him to reveal anything terribly fabulous. After the interview was over and we started tearing down the lights and putting the camera equipment away, I look at Mr. Davis and I say to him, you know, you, you have this great job here at uh, Tory's Law Firm. You're probably making five to ten times more money you made than when you were premier. Yes. You don't have the stress of, of you know, politics where your government, you never knew if the government was going to fall at the end of the day. You see more of your own grandchildren than you saw of your own kids. This must be the best job you ever had. Yeah. And he looks at me and he says, Stephen, this job on its most fascinating day can't touch being Premier of Ontario on the dullest. Lovely. Lovely. And that stuck in my head, Avram, for 15 years before somebody said, what book do you want to write? And I said, I want to write a book about what is this seductive lure of politics. Yes. Because from where I stand, it's an awful way to make a living. Ruins lives, constant criticism, destroys families. What is so seductive about politics? So anyway, she convinced me to write up the, the, um, the book proposal. I did. She shopped it around. Penguin wanted it. I wrote a book for Penguin. And then off to the races. That was book one of seven. What is the most seductive thing about it? Well, the most seductive thing about it is when you pick up the paper first thing in the morning and you see a problem in your city, town, province, country, you are in a position to do something about it. Right. And in my experience, yes, there's a bunch of people who get into politics for all the wrong reasons. They're vainglorious. They're whatever, whatever. In my experience, the vast majority of people get into public life for that reason. They want to improve the little postage stamp size piece of the world that they represent. And if they're lucky enough to get into cabinet or even luckier to be a first minister where you can really have a significant impact, uh, well, there you go. That's... That's about as good a way to contribute to your society as it gets, uh, if you do it right. How long does that last for? What leads to most of the politicians' demise or their end of their career? Oh, boy. Complicated question. Well, a bunch of things. Some of them make bad decisions. That comes back to haunt. Some of them stick around too long. That comes back to haunt. Uh, Some of them don't mind their P's and Q's within their own party, and they are the target of a coup. And that'll get you. Have you seen all this stuff? All of the above, yeah. for sure, for sure. Some people just get absolutely burned out. They've got nothing left. Some people lose their families. And so that by the time it comes to leaving, they are, they're just a crushed, empty eggshell by the time they get to the end. You've seen this. Oh, that's what the first two books are about. The first book was called The Life, yes. The Seductive Call of Politics. Why do they want to get in? The second book was called The Dark Side, The Personal Price of a Political Life. And that's all the terrible crap that happens to them once they get in. And I can't remember who said it. Jeez, I wish I could remember who said it. But the quote is something like, every political career ends in tragedy. And that is 99% true. Is it? It is. People don't think so, but it really is. Explain that. Well, most people's political careers either end because they lose or they walk away before they lose, but they probably walked away before they wanted to. Or something awful has happened to them in public life. 
Um, it is a precious few that actually get to walk away when they want, having had a great political career, and seamlessly move on to the next chapter of their lives. Like whom? Give us an example. Well, the first example, frankly, that comes to mind is a guy named Greg Sorbera. Right. Uh, Greg Sorbera got into politics in 1985 with a promise to his wife, who thought he was nuts for doing so, with a promise to his wife saying, darling, this is something I feel I need to do, but trust me, the liberals haven't won this seat. This was in York region. They have never won this seat since Confederation. So this is something I will do as a project for the next five months, and then when the blossoms come out on that tree in our front yard, this will all be over, right. and we'll get back to our lives. <laughs> yeah. Well, surprise, surprise. He happened to have run in 1985 when the Tory dynasty was coming to an end, and David Peterson won that election, and Greg Sorbero won that election. And he stuck around uh, f for 10 years and then left of his own volition and then got back into politics a bunch of years later when Dalton McGuinty was the leader and served as finance minister. And then once again, left of his own volition. Right. Now, right. he wouldn't say that he was in politics um, scot-free. He got punched around but good in politics, including the subject of an ill-advised RCMP investigation of which he was totally exonerated. And, you know, and there's obviously it's an elbows-up sport politics. So he had his share. But he's a guy who then left politics the second time and seamlessly seems to have transitioned into his new life, which is as a, um, you know, he's building a hotel in Picton in oh, Prince he? Edward County. Yeah. He's bringing the old Royal Hotel back to life. This is his new mission in life. I tell you, he's, he's, he might be one in a thousand. Yeah. He might be one in 10,000 of people who leave public life uh, okay and move on seamlessly to their next challenge in life. How are they afterward? There, there are many politicians who can't deal with the transition of their phone not ringing anymore. They can't deal with the fact that no one's walking down the hall calling them minister anymore. Yes. They can't deal with the fact that, that they're just not so much of their puffed up chest. The bravado. Yeah, comes from the job they had. And I tell you, Brian Mulroney, people may have criticisms of Brian Mulroney for a bunch of reasons. The one thing that Brian Mulroney told his kids when he was prime minister back in 1984 was, kids, we're living a 24 Sussex Drive. It's pretty cool, but it's all temporary. It'll end. We are only going to be here for a short time. Yeah. So, you know, we'll, in, we'll enjoy it while it's here, but let's don't inhale, right? Just remember, <laughs> this all comes to an end. Bob Ray, we talked about earlier, he's got this great joke of, you know, how does a politician not know when his political career has come to an end? Yeah. He gets into the backseat of a car and nothing happens. <laughs> right. Very good. So Wayne Gretzky, same thing? Same thing? Like his phone's not ringing? He's not, you know, I tell you. this. Well, is, Wayne's not a politician. No. You said there are comparisons between sports and politics. Okay. Yeah. You, you talked about that with Bob Ray. Mm -hmm. So my, I look at Wayne Gretzky. It's more of the behavior that I'm, I, I'm focusing on now. That uh, my heart goes out to him because he do, he did not seem to have transitioned well out of hockey. He just doesn't seem like he's happy at all. And I'm thinking is there's no dress room. He loved the camaraderie, just like the politician. I'm sure loved being in cabinet and that craziness that went on. Right. So there, are, I'm making comparisons mm -hmm. here. Uh, yeah, I'm just wondering what your take is on that. Uh, first of all, I, I, you know, you can draw whatever inference you want yeah. from seeing him. I've never talked to him about this, so I don't know. A. Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. My, my sense is Wayne Gretzky's had a pretty good... I mean, first of all, he had the best career of anybody in hockey ever. Which ended. Of course it ended. And he knew it would end. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing about these athletes. Unlike politicians, 
you know, who can keep serving as long as they keep winning. You know, every athlete knows their career is going to come to an end, probably prematurely, yes. right? Probably before they want it to. And so did Wayne Gretzky's, right? I, I'll never forget him with the New York Rangers where he finished up his career. Coming to the sad realization that even though he may have been the greatest player who ever laced him up, he couldn't do it to the standards that he had set for himself anymore, and he felt he had to go. That's right. And I, I think he's only had his skates on once since he left. That is correct. Is that right? That yeah. is correct. He yeah. did the outdoor game right. a couple of years ago. Right. The old-timers game. And you, you know, Steve, he actually said that. He decided to put them on because they really, really encouraged him to do so. And I was watching him really closely, and I'm a purveyor of life like you are. And I, uh, yeah, yeah, like the Gretzky just wasn't there. He had one play where it looked as though he had eyes in the back of his head, which was kind of kind of his modus operandi. Sure. But otherwise, man, he just did not look happy. On, and he came off the, and he sat on the bench. He just did not look happy. Now, let's put it into perspective. He's had a fantastic post-hockey life. He got to coach a team. He got to own a piece of the team. This was in Arizona. He's got his vineyard that is going well. He can make any business deal he wants with anybody he wants. He is a goodwill ambassador for the NHL. He's a very, very rich man. Uh, his kids are doing well. Uh, Wayne Gretzky is not a guy who he, he's not a guy who didn't have any post hockey life because of too many concussions. He's not a guy whose phone stopped ringing. He's not a guy who who's you know got no options. He's not a guy whose family life fell apart. You know. There are all those awful stories in post, post-hockey post as well. I mean, I would argue to you, when you are the great one, and, and, and you're reviewed as such constantly throughout your entire life, starting from the time that you're 10 years old, that greatness comes to an end, and it's likely something that he could never achieve again. He was not a great coach. We don't know that. We know his teams did not do well. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Interesting nuance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I often think about those guys who are just so big, there was nowhere to go, like Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, and their lives ended tragically. Why? Where do you go? Right? That is a problem. And it, it's why they often say the best coaches are the guys who often rode the bench because they got a chance to watch the game and study it and analyze it. Whereas for Gretzky, I, I bet you Gretzky, if you sat him down and said, how did you do what you did? He probably couldn't explain it. He had so much natural ability mixed with a voracious appetite to work hard to get better that he probably can't explain why other players can't do what he does. Whereas the guy who rode the bench, he probably can. And you you, you watch. You look around. doesn't yeah. matter what sport. Yeah. The best coaches almost always are never the superstars. They're the guys who rode the bench. A point well taken. The New Game is a book you wrote. It's called How Hockey Saved Itself. And this is what you wrote about it. Scoring is up. Fan interest is up. Pinpoint passing is up. I thought that was an interesting choice. Goonery is down, and I'm happy about that. Are you? Yes. Yes, yeah, so am I. Then metamorphosis in hockey has been astonishing and promises to be even more so as changes continue to filter throughout the game. You continue. As the great John Beliveau said, the game is once again being played the way it is supposed to be played. In the new game, Media commentator and lifelong hockey fan Steve Pakin examines the many aspects of Canada's favorite sport, addressing the major changes have take, that have taken place in hockey. Has it been so dramatic? Yes, and I wrote that 15 years ago after the league locked out the players and right. there was no Stanley Cup. Right. And that was the first time there had been no Stanley Cup awarded since 1919 when the Spanish flu basically wiped out uh, so much of Canada that they couldn't uh, host the Stanley Cup. 
so there were a bunch of changes that happened in hockey as a result of that. They got a lot of goonery out. They got a lot of the hooking and clutching and grabbing. They got that out. They allowed the speed uh, to really blossom. Uh, the great passing, the game, they opened up the game in a way that hadn't been for the previous, I don't know, 50 years. And I think we're seeing the results of it right now. I don't know about you, but I think hockey today is fabulous to so watch. So do I. I do too. It's so fast. I do too. And they're so talented. Yeah. And it's so tough. And even when we think they're not hitting all that hard, let me tell you something. I know. They're hitting hard. Yeah. So uh, I think all of the changes they made to the game 15 years ago after that lost season, uh, I would say the vast majority have been positive. And um, it's just, I, I think it's phenomenal to, it's phenomenal to watch. And I hope I can just keep playing it for a very, very long time. We'll what, see. What position do you play? I play defense. H- how are you? You know, I'm, a, I'm an okay stay-at-home defenseman. Yeah? Yeah. Are you a good skater? I, I, Avram, I'm almost 59. How good a skater can well, I be? Well, wait. So how long <laughs> have you been playing for? Well, I've played my whole life. And when you were younger, were you a good skater? Were no. you a good player? I have always been a mediocre hockey player, but I love to play. You do? Yeah. Except, like... This is a yeah. little... Uh, what happened to your hand? Well, I broke... Uh, on the last shift of my last game of this season, I broke I broke a finger. Yeah. So I'm not happy about that because I sure hope it gets better because, you know, when the when we reconvene in September, I want to play again. But at the moment, it uh, looks like baseball is very iffy for this summer. Does your wife tell you not to go? The like, is she thing, upset your finger's broken? No. The, the, she, she thought I was an idiot for, for coming <laughs> home and not going immediately to emerge and have it looked at. Why, did it look weird? <laughs> yeah, I went home, I put some ice on it, and I figured, okay, it's just bruised. And then I, of course, went, she looked at it and said, please go to the hospital and have it x-rayed. And yeah. I did, and it was broken. Um, I want to keep, my hero in all of this is a guy named Ian McDonald. Yeah. He used to be the, did you go to York University? I did. Okay, he's the former president of York University. Okay. He's 89. He still plays three times a week for the York faculty hockey team. You're kidding. I am not. And he's in the... Senior Citizens Hockey Hall of Fame. Is he? And he's, you know what? I want to be playing hockey when I'm 89 years old as well. Yeah. I just want to play as long as I can. I enjoy it so much. What, what do you like about the game, playing it? Um, I like that even a mediocre player like me can have moments of tremendously exciting creativity, which I never would have expected. Right. I'll play a whole season, and I will score in a whole season – Six goals. Yeah. So one every three or four games. Yeah. Not a lot. But one of those goals will be something special. There and you are. I'll play the whole year just for that moment. And thankfully, there's still one moment like that. It's also, I mean, I think when you have a sedentary lifestyle and you spend a lot of time behind a word process, behind a computer and, you know, it's a great outlet for everything. You know, we play non-contact, but there's a little banging around that goes on and... I enjoy that. I enjoy just the outlet of of competing and trying and being frustrated and working on a team. And, and then after the game's over, just shooting the BS with the guys in the locker room. That's all great fun. Do you remember when you were a kid and you would go out and play a game and you would play this phenomenal game, at least in your mind, and you'd lie down at night, put your head on the pillow, and you'd be thinking about that wicked goal that you <laughs> scored, right? So tell us about the wicked goal from 2018, the one that made it all worth it. Um, okay. This, of course, only happened in my own mind. But <laughs> I picked up the puck behind yeah. my net. And for some reason, I saw a lane. And I just kept going. 
And it's in hockey, they call it a coast-to-coast goal. You just take it all the way up the ice. You didn't pass it. You just, I skated up the ice. I saw an opening. I got around the defenseman. And I'm one-on-one on the goalie. And I just tucked it in that top corner like there was two inches on the top right-hand corner. Yeah. And I found it. And it went in. And I was there was no more shocked person in the rink than me. And, yeah, that happened in, oh, I don't know, six weeks ago. Yeah. And it's enough to bring me back for another 25 games next year. That's fantastic. <laughs> what a great story. A little bit like a backbencher, I guess, right? They do one thing a year that makes a difference. And, and there's that moment. There's that moment. I had probably 10 years ago, and I actually wrote about this in the, uh, in the new game, in the book. I had another moment like that. Picked the puck up behind my net, went coast to coast up the rink, cut across. I come up the right side, and I cut across the goalie's crease and tucked it in the far side. And he tripped me, the goalie as I reached across to put the puck in the far side and went flying through the air as the puck went in the net. And the first thing that went through my mind was, holy crap, that's a Bobby Orr goal. Like Bobby Orr won the Stanley Cup in 1970 on a goal just like that against the St. Louis Blues. Right, against St. Louis, yes. So I'm thinking in my head, that just happened. Yeah. And then I got to the bench, and my teammate, Larry, on the bench said, Pakin, that looked just like the Bobby Orkle. So I thought, okay, I'm not completely insane here. Uh, somebody else saw it too. That's very cool. So two memorable goals in 35 years of playing hockey with this group of guys, that's enough to get me to come back year after year uh, after year. That's beautiful. I love that. I love that. Do you have any affiliation? When I say affiliation, have you done interviews with, with the Leafs or any hockey players? Oh, yeah, for the book. Other yeah. than the books, like on the agenda or what have you? Oh, almost never. We almost never do sports on the agenda. Maybe once a year we'll do a sports discussion. So, yeah. And the the, the most memorable one for me in that one, yeah. my favorite hockey player of all time is Ronnie Ellis. Ronnie Ellis. Played for Number the, six. You got it. Yeah. Played for the Leafs uh, back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. The only team they played for, 332 goals for the, uh, for the blue and white. And this is probably 20-plus years ago. Uh, I was doing a show then called Studio Two, and they wanted to do a show on the importance of hockey and Canadian culture. And what they were going to do is, they said, we're going to go to somebody's, we've got permission to go to somebody's backyard in Newmarket. They freeze their backyard and they make a makeshift rink. So we're going to go there and we want to get one ex-NHLer to join us for this shoot. Then we'll interview them and so on. Pakin, who do you want? Yeah. I said, oh, come on. I want Ronnie Ellis. (laughs) Yeah. And they got him and he agreed to do it. Oh my goodness, was this fun. And we skated around, skated around, just he and I talking, microphones on. We're doing this interview. And then we get to a big snow drift, and he sticks his hip up and hip checks me right into the snow drift. <laughs> sends me flying. I love that. And then uh, as he's skating away, he says, keep your head up, kid. Is that what he said? That was fantastic. Oh, my gosh. I still remember it like it was yesterday, and it was beautiful. I loved it. I just loved it. The lovely thing is, he's he is the... Like one of the finest people I've ever met. Oh, he's, how's, a how's great, he's a great, great man. He's a great soul. He is a wonderful, um, charitable, honest, lovely man who, who I've actually become friends with over the years, which is a beautiful thing. Yeah. And every year he asks me to emcee uh, a charity that he's involved with, and I, and I look forward to doing it so much. And one year I actually asked him to make a guest appearance at a charity that I was emceeing for him and, and he did it and um, it's I'm just it's one of the many things in life that uh, I'm just blessed that I got to meet my all-time sports idol and he turned out to be 
as magnificent a person as I hoped he would be. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, there's a story told um, or maybe a lesson in life where whereby, you know, you want to meet your 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 an icon in your life. Mm. And very often you meet them and they're interesting and they're fascinating for the first few minutes. And then the more you get to know them, the light just slowly starts to get off, mm. go off. But then there's other people whom you meet and the more time you spend with them, the greater they become. Yes, he's, right? he's that. Who shores? Um, I, you know, I have great respect for some people in my family, actually. These are very highly accomplished in terms of their devotion to who they are and what they do. As an example, my brother-in-law, Rabbi Hecht, he's a brilliant, brilliant man, and he is uh, authentic. And he pursues his dreams, which is thoughts on Torah and Judaism. And he does so voraciously and very honestly, and I've learned so much from him. But he's family, so you know him well. Yeah. Who, who, who's an icon either in show business or in athletics, who you might have had a chance to meet, and, and they either fulfilled all of your expectations or they didn't. Um, I, I, w I had a chance to meet some really fascinating people on Marty and Alvarez, the food guys. Oh, yeah. I used to do uh, a radio show no, on CFRB course, at 640. And it was, it was a lot of sh fun. It was a really quirky show. And we had fascinating people on there, one of whom was, uh, I mentioned this in a previous show, was Jose Feliciano. Oh, yeah. And, and, and again, per my de definition of accomplished, he really was. And he was also a very good man. Hmm. And I uh, have great respect for somebody who has gumption, who has bravery, and who has courage. I just inter interviewed Pat Rush, who's an icon in the guitar industry. He played with Johnny Winter. He was on Jeff Healy's band in Jeff Healy's band for 12 years. And he told me Jeff Healy would go out in a foreign country in Europe on his own, obviously not knowing any idea how the country or the city was set up. And he would go because he wanted to jam and nobody else wanted to go. Guy, guys say, like that. Guys, well, You should say, for, for those who don't know him, he, he was blind. He was. So that was a thank you. huge challenge to go to a place that he didn't know. Jeff Healy, yeah. uh, Jose Feliciano, both, both, both of them yeah. blind. Yeah. Do you ever do you ever interview mus musicians? Yes. One. You know, it's funny. Again, back in the studio two days, we used to have musicians come in twice a week, and I learned so much about music. Right. right. Getting a chance to interview. Now, when the agenda came, the the, the cost of clearing music rights and just it, it got to be too much, so we couldn't do it. They let me do one music show a year now. Which so, what was last year's? Um, oh my gosh. Okay. They all start to blend in after a while, but I know, for example, I think Peter Ungen, the just departed uh, maestro for the Toronto Symphony, we had him in. I've had Melanie Doan in, yes. uh, who was talking all about how she teaches ukulele to kids. Um, Sam Broverman was in, a U of T math professor who, yeah. who loves singing standards. I had him come in. Ian Thomas, whom I love, uh, the Canadian brass, uh, they're, they've all, all those guys have got a Hamilton connection. So those are some of the people in the last few years. Just to answer your question, by yeah. the way. <laughs> um, it was exciting, by the way, when you asked me a question. I like that. <laughs> I uh, have great respect for, for uh, Ron McLean. Okay. Do you know Ron? Well, I've, I, I mean, he's not a friend, but I've we, we certainly met numerous times and we know each other a little bit. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. He Look, at he, he had the job. He lost the job. Yeah. The people spoke. And he got the job back. Yes, yes. And he's still doing the job. Totally and he agree. He does it well. He does it extremely well. He's very well read. He's a philosopher by nature. Nobody can do what he does with John Cherry. Nobody. Could you do that job? N not as well as him. Not. No, I couldn't for either. Sure. No, no. 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 They have a unique chemistry. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely, singularly unique. And I don't. I. You know, when when Don isn't doing it anymore, 
and when Ron isn't doing it anymore, I don't know. I mean, that that is not replicatable. It's going to have to be a whole different thing. Very true. They're, they've just got such a unique thing. Very true. Is the agenda replicatable without oh, you? Oh, yeah, for sure. Without you? Well, the show is called The Agenda with Steve Pakin. So when I leave the show, it'll be The Agenda with somebody else. With someone else. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, no. We are all very replaceable, those of us who, who host these kinds of shows. Just, just to take a step sideways for a second, sure. you, you used to go on – we were talking about sports, and, and, and I love talking about sports. You used to go on sports holidays with your family? Oh, still do. What What are sports holidays? Road trips. Like like what? Oh, you know, we'd go down to Fenway Park and see a couple of games in Boston and yeah. check out a Bruins game at the same time. Or Yeah, we, um, Avram, I, we did this every year, and it's a multi-generational thing. Uh, my dad, um, me, as many of my kids as I can wrestle up. I think the last one we did was Philadelphia. We went to see the Red Sox in Philadelphia a couple of years ago. And you drive there? We drive or fly, yeah. We've done Boston, we've done Cleveland, we've done Pittsburgh, we've done anyway. We've done a lot of places. We didn't do one last summer. Yeah. I purposely decided last summer we were not going to do one. Because. Because I was. This is going to sound ridiculous. Okay, you ready yeah, for it? I'm ready for the ridiculous. <laughs> because I was a little heartbroken at President Trump's putting sanctions on Canada his country's best friend. And so I was so upset about it. I oh. just said, we don't need to go spend 10 grand in the U.S. right now on hotels and tickets and sites. And I'm just too mad. Oh, so we didn't do it last summer. Uh, that was our family trip. In fact, I canceled three annual trips to the States last year. Um, I didn't boycott the U.S. entirely. But I, I usually take a trip to Buffalo yeah. with about 15 people to go see a Sabres game. Canceled that. Usually go on a boys weekend, again, 15 people to a kind of a, we'll do an NHL game, an NFL game, and an NBA game all in the same weekend. Oh, wow. I didn't, we didn't do that one either. And, uh, and the family road trip. Didn't do that one either. What did your boys say, your buddies say when you canceled? Well, I think they understood. Did, I think Did they go? Um, not to the Sabres one and not to the family road trip, but some of them still went. I think they went to Atlanta. They saw the Falcons and the Hawks. Um, some of them still went. I think a lot of them, I think they understood. I think I, what I was feeling, I think was something many Canadians were feeling, which is we're your best friends have been for 200 years and you're not treating us nicely <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. And I, you know, I, I couldn't, there was no way, I'm in a job where I'm not allowed to express my opinions. Yes. So the only way I could express my sadness about all of this was just to say, well, okay, um, this is what I can do. So this is what we are not going to do this year. So you're truly a lover of Canada. Truly are. This is a surprise? It's not a surprise that you are, but I've often felt the definition of a Canadian is someone who doesn't consider who they are. You remember when we were growing up, we were all very sort of uh, middle of the road. You know, no one, a lot of people didn't care about who they voted for, the sense being, well, everyone's going to do the same thing. We weren't well-defined as a people, and in essence, that was the definition of a Canadian. 
It's it's simplistic. Well, it's simplistic. If you're saying that the that the band of political differences in this country in the past was always fairly narrow, yeah. yes, I hear you. Yeah. The band is broader now. It is now. It's, yeah. it's not uh, Eastern European broad, but it's you know it's broader than it used to be. But yeah, um, yeah, I think obviously much of our much of our inter interaction in this country has been traditionally in the in the vast middle, however you want to define that. Correct. And there probably wasn't a heck of a lot of difference between. Um, you know, frankly, a, um, a Louis Saint Laurent liberal and a Brian Mulroney progressive conservative. You know, they probably, the Venn diagram would have them occupying a lot of the same political territory. Uh, but it's different now. It's different now. So, Steve, what do you love about being Canadian? What's not to love? We uh, Take it a bit further. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look around the world. What other country would you rather live in right now than Canada? Truly. I, uh, you know, I, I can't think of one um, where the where the politics are, yes, a little rough and tumble, but by comparison to other countries, are you kidding? Yeah. Um, we have a beautiful country physically to look at. We have people from all over the place who, you know, get along relatively well. Uh, we have, I think we live in the most livable city in the world right now. And I'm not going to claim to be an aficionado of, of, you know, big cities around the world. I've never lived in any of the big, great cities in the world. Uh, but Toronto right now just feels uh, like a city with limitless potential. Right. And when you, when, you look, when you look at the city, go to the top of the CN Tower and look at the city and look at the number of cranes in the air. Yeah, it's there phenomenal. There are more cranes in the air than anywhere else in North America. Yes. You know, a lot of people are betting on Toronto. So I just think there's there's so much to love about this place. So you're you're a very you're a very adventuresome human being you are. You know, like your eyes are wide open. You you seem like you're in a constant state of awe. And I have to tell you something you're going to get a kick out of. So I spoke to Brian, our mutual friend, our mutual as friend. I mentioned before. And uh, she's uh, just a lovely human being and she was your girlfriend in grade 10. <laughs> right for two months and ten days. Bro, oh, really? Is that what it was? <laughs> yes. How, how do you remember that? Why do you remember? It? I, uh, because every time I see her, we joke about it. Oh, so okay. I, th- it's not that that figure has been indelibly inscribed in my mind. We just always joke about it. So a couple of things that she said, and then I'll get back to the point here. She said her very first record that she ever got was called uh, "Transformer" by Lou Reed, and she got it at your bar mitzvah. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. You well, know, you the know f- what? The, probably the DJ was giving out records. Now, these are long play, LP records played at 33 and a third speed. Right. She probably won one. Isn't she said, I didn't know that. Do you remember the freeze dances? Well, she won that record. Okay, at there your, you go. How was your bar mitzvah? Um, you know, last I recall, it seemed to go pretty well. <laughs> Do you remember any of the gifts you got? Like ballpoint pen or something? I got a calculator from my parents. Did you? That's what I asked for, and that's what I got. I yeah. needed a calculator for math class, and so I got that. Texas Instrument? Yes, as a matter of fact. T-130? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's what I got. <laughs> okay. Okay, so Brian says like this, and you're going to get a kick out of this, and you should be complimented. She's a good person. She said, after you, she said, all her boyfriends paled. <laughs> Okay, here's why. Here's why. That is, is so not true, but this, it's this is why. very this nice is of her why. to lie about that. No, she said like this. She said, you know, I remember I went on a date with Steve and his family, and here's what we did in one date, okay? We went to a play. We went to dinner 
at Honest Ed's, and then we went to a hockey game. I was going to say, we went to, I remember this. We yeah. went to the Royal Alex. Yeah. And then Honest Ed's for dinner. That's right. And then we went to a Leaf game. You do remember this? Absolutely. Do you remember who they played? I don't. No, I don't. But I do remember that this happened. Yes. <laughs> do you see yourself yeah. as having a good memory? On some things, yes. Is I it still a, as good as it was? On some things, yes. As in what? As in on October 27th, 2004, the Red Sox won their first World Series in 86 years. Yeah. There's some stuff that's stuck in that head that I hope is going to be there for a very long time. You remember who wins elections? Yeah, I'm pretty good at that, too. How far back does that go? I don't know. Try me. 1932, if I'm off by a year or two. The election in Ontario was in 1930, not 32. Okay, 30. George Henry won. Do you know about George Henry at all? I do, actually, because uh, his father and uncle owned the sawmill on Manitoulin Island. (laughs) Did they? And I have a cottage 15 minutes from where that sawmill is. Really? So the Henry brothers, yes, are quite legendary in that neck of the province. And George Henry would have been, uh, he would have been uh, the premier from 30 to 35, and then he lost. He was only one-term premier. Yeah, so that's somehow stuck in the back of my head somewhere. 1922, who was the premier? (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. Now this is getting tougher. (laughs) Uh, It was Ernest Drury because he was the winner of the 1919 election for the United Farmers of Ontario. They had a single term as a majority government, so that would have been from 1919 to 1922. Do you go back into the 1800s? Well, John Sanfield MacDonald was our first premier in 1867. Yeah. Edward Blake after him. And do you know about these guys? You know, a little bit, A little bit here and there. Uh, Sanfield MacDonald would have been... Only one of two Catholic premiers we've had in Ontario history. We've had 26 premiers, only two Catholics, McDonald being one. You know the other? Uh, no, I Wasn't don't. Wasn't that long ago. A Catholic? I'm sorry, I don't. Dalton McGinty? Oh, Dalton. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So anyway, I probably know a little tidbit of irrelevancy about most of them. Do people come to you for information about the premiers? Like, are you an archivist of sorts? You know, every now and then I get an email from a reporter at Queen's Park or something like that saying, hey, they just announced this. Yeah. Has this ever happened before? And they kind of expect me to know. Will the premier ever say to you, Steve, I don't remember what I did in this and this situation. Can you tell me? (laughs) (laughs) That has never happened. That has never happened. That would be interesting, though. I do remember one time, though, Dwight Duncan, who was the minister of finance at the time, uh, was talking about one of his predecessors who was also premier. If you can imagine this, Leslie Frost was the premier in the 50s and his own minister of finance at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So Dwight Duncan's having this scrum at Queen's Park, and he starts talking about powerful treasurers like Leslie Frost. And then he looks at me and says, and Steve, you, of course, know what his middle name was, right? <laughs> and I said, Miss Campbell. <laughs> he said, that's right. Why is that in there? I have no idea. But that's somewhere stuck in the back. Like, why is it up in your mind? Exactly. Why is Leslie Frost's middle name in my head somewhere? I have no idea. So I've asked a couple of people if they have any questions that they would ask you. I'm going to throw them by you right now. Ellie Rubenstein. Do you know Ellie? He's the director yeah. of March of the Living, yeah. Congregation Habonim. I've actually interviewed him. He's a fascinating human being. Mm-hmm. He wants to know if you ever get rid, of, if you ever get tired of the spins, the political spins. Um, tired of them. You know, if you watch the agenda, you'll notice we don't have very many politicians on very often. Yeah. And I think part of the reason is we made a decision when we started the show 13 years ago that we were not going to be kind of a repository for 
politicians to right. come on a lot and do their thing. Yes. That we would rather have the sort of wise and the witty and the smart and the serious and we'll, uh, you know, we'll cast our lot with them on the theory that they can uh, be more honest and direct with us. So I guess the short answer is yes, I do get tired of it from time to time. And how do you deal with it? Uh, by having fewer and fewer politicians on the show. Oh, okay. So that's how you and deal pushing with it. back. You know, we had the Minister of Education on the other day, and she's a rookie, you know, cabinet minister. Obviously, many, uh, many of them in this current government of Ontario are rookies. They've never been in cabinet before. And, you know, I think I, I, I don't want to show anybody up, and I don't want to be rude to anybody, but, but she answered a question, which the answer to which was what you would just describe it as. It was kind of spin. It was not responsive at all to the question. It was just spin. Yes. And I said, I hope politely, I said to her, you know, where I come from, that's known as a bit of a fudge. So let's try this one again. <laughs> right, right. So I, you know, I don't want to show anybody up, but I hope I made the point. Have you ever been accused of, of being rude? Because you're not rude. You know, Avram, the only time I hit a guest was a rabbi. You actually hit him? <laughs> I did. Um, okay, you're going to help me with his name because you're going to remember his name. Yeah. Um, oh, my goodness. Tikkun Olam. A local fellow? A local fellow, Orthodox rabbi, Michael. Oh, I'm blanking. Isn't that terrible? This happens more often. Dolgan? No, this happens more often than not down, or I can't, I can't find a name. But he came on the program and he wanted to talk about Tikkun Olam. And I asked the first question. Which is repairing the world. Yes. And he went on for about three minutes. And I thought, you know, he's a rabbi. I shouldn't interrupt him. It would be rude. So I asked a second question when he was finished. And he went on for another three minutes. And then I tried to break in just to show him that, you know, it really has to be more of a conversation. It can't just be a filibuster. Yes. And he was about my age. And I took a gamble that he probably had a good sense of humor. So I tried to interrupt with a follow-up question, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't stop talking. He just kept going. And I tried to interrupt him again, and he wouldn't stop going. He just kept going. Yeah. So I rolled my script up in a, you know, in a <laughs> cylindrical form. Like you would if you were to hit a cat. And that's what I did. And I started to hit him. I hit him on the arm. I kept hitting him and saying, you've got to let me get in with another question. This is not a monologue. And thankfully, he, like you, started to laugh. He did. And and it became a better conversation after that. You're pretty cool because you have a great sense of humor. You don't mind. You don't take yourself too seriously. Like you interviewed yourself, right? After you came out with a book. And it's a very uh, contentious sort of thing. Like you you walked off. I, I'm the set. Not, not afraid to make myself look like a fool in at my all. own interview. You're not at all. Whatever. That was for fun. No, but I, I, like they say in Hebrew, call like a vote. Good for you. <laughs> okay. No, 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 because you and I both know people who take themselves far too seriously, right? I always think you should take the job seriously. You should take the work seriously. Agreed. Take the topic seriously, the issue seriously, not yourself seriously. I, I totally agree. So Ellie asked that question. Uh, my dear friend Vicki Weiss asked the question is, you've been on this iteration of the agenda since 2006. It actually started in 1992, I believe, or being on TVO since 1992. Yeah, TVO since 92. It's a long time. You're a real veteran in this industry. How'd you do it? It's it's a long time at the same place, but the job has constantly changed under my feet the whole time I've been there. Right. I came in in 1992 to host two to host an existing weekly show and create a new weekly Queens Park show. Did that. Two years later, Studio Two was created. Did that for 12 years. At the end of that, the agenda was created. Oh, and in the midst of Studio Two, helped create and host a weekly foreign affairs show called Diplomatic Immunity. Yeah. Then those two shows got canceled and the agenda was created. Have been doing the agenda for 13 years. And the agenda has gone through 
you know, some different iterations. Uh, it's Yes, it's hosting a TV program, but it's also writing columns for a website. It's also going to live events and live, live tweeting them. So I get to scratch some reportorial skills still. Uh, so the job, you know, you, you can't say you've been doing the same job for 26 years. Doesn't that get boring? I haven't been. Yeah. When I started at TVO, we couldn't even send email. And now, oh my gosh, we're on air, we're online, we're, you know, live streaming on Twitter and Facebook. And, you know, 26 years ago, I wouldn't even have recognized this future. I would have thought it was right. impossible, but there you are. And, and, and it's very cool because... A little while back, you interviewed Tony Bennett. Oh, yeah. Just recently, you interv interviewed uh, Gina Vanelli. Yes. I mean, <laughs> you really are exposed to some very, very successful human beings, right? This is the great thing about the job. Yeah. Avram, in one day, yeah. in one day, I interviewed a journalist who had covered the Rwanda genocide. Mm -hmm. We did, as you pointed out, a panel discussion with survivors of the Rwandan genocide. And then I interviewed Gina Vanelli. Like, if that doesn't show you what an eclectic, wide range of different issues, and there was one other interview we did four that day, and oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the fourth one, but it was similarly, you know, it, it was similarly dissimilar from anything else that I'd done that day. So it's such a broad palette, and that's what, uh, that's what I love about the job so much. Municipal affairs, provincial affairs, national affairs, labor issues, the economy, social studies, uh, psychiatry, the brain, science, astronomy, theoretical physics. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's four different things every day. Right, right. How can you not love that? I mean, if you're curious about how the world works, how can you not love that? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Is there any particular area that you come to life more so than others? Probably, but I don't know. Okay, you know? okay. I, when you did the Tony Bennett interview, you were highly animated. Because I love him. You were smiling a lot. Yeah, you said you went to interviews when you were a kid, and you just recently went to one, right? I saw Tony Bennett alone yeah. at Hamilton Place when I was 12. And I went alone because my folks, sorry, if they're listening, I'm going to bust them here. They said, <laughs> oh, Tony Bennett, you know, we've seen him before. We don't want to go. Yeah. So I said, well, I want to go. So I went alone at age 12, and I asked Tony about that concert in the interview, yeah. and he actually remembered it. And I said, I said, how do you possibly, I mean, it was 40 years, I don't know, 35, 40 years later. I said, how can you possibly remember it? He said, oh, I remember the place so well. It was Hamilton Place, beautiful theater. Wonderful auditorium. acoustics, he said. Yes, they, yeah. that's right. Wonderful yeah. acoustics. They just opened it, and he, he, he did remember it. Yeah, yeah. And I asked Gino, actually told that story to Gino Vanelli. What did he say? After we got off the air, and he said, he said, I'm not surprised. He said, artists frequently remember the venues in which they did shows. Oh, do they? And he said, people come up to him all the time and say, you know, I saw you perform in New Orleans at such and such, and he'll remember it. They remember all that stuff. Are you starstruck at all? N not really. Um, you know, it depends. Every now and then. Like, I don't mind saying for Gino Vanelli, I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah. I listen, I listened to his music when I was, uh, you know, a teenager. So. Was his shirt open? Did you see his hair chest? Did <laughs> no. You he's 66 now. He dresses a little more modest. But does he look but good? He's got the hair. He still he's does. He's still got the fabulous hair. Yeah. And the voice. Mm -hmm. He still sounds fantastic. Chains? Did he have gold chains? Not that I recall. Oh, okay. Did you? <laughs> no. Uh, no. No. There have only been a, I can probably count on the fingers of one hand, the numbers of occasions where I was absolutely starstruck by who I was interviewing. Like whom? The first one that comes to mind was Ken Stabler, because I was a huge Oakland Raiders fan growing up, and he was Kenny the Snake Stabler, and my nickname growing up was Pake the Snake. You got it right. The quarterback. You got your left hand up. That's the quarterback. right. Quarterback. Left-handed quarterback. For what, the what was your nickname? 
my nickname was Pake the Snake, partially because it rhymed and partially because everybody knew I loved Kenny Stabler. Oh, okay. So when I okay. met him, oh, I could barely get a word out. It was just, you know, crazy. So yeah. I, I, that was one occasion. Who else? Alana Miles, huh? truth be told. Oh. She sang, came into the studio, sang Black Velvet on Studio Two. And my jaw just dropped. Right. I mean, that was such an iconic hit. Right. And there she is, 10 feet away from me, singing it. Now I get to go talk to her and interview her about it. And I don't mind saying she looked fantastic. Yeah. And yeah, so that was great, too. Have you ever been stymied? You know, probably. Probably. Didn't know what to say? Tongue-tied. Tongue-tied? Yeah. Yeah. Does something come to mind? Nothing at the moment. Nothing at the moment. No. Maybe I've tried to... Erase the memory from my head. That's possible. <laughs> it, uh, just a few questions here about about interviewing um, tricks of the trade, um, because there's a lot to be done when you are an interviewer, even in terms of how you sit at the table. Don Cherry speaks extensively about that. That he's read lots of biographies of stars hmm. and what they do in order to prepare for whatever it is that they're about to do. Uh, Ron McLean has done volunteer work for Via Hafta, which is an organization that I started. It's a humanitarian organization. He would come in and tell our students at our Via Hafta Street Academy, which is a school for the homeless, many, many, many beautiful, beautiful hockey stories. Mm -hmm. And he would talk about when he and Don are on the plane. Ron reads books on philosophy. And Don reads books on uh, stars, Hollywood stars. And he studies them to see how they best perform and what they do, the tricks of the trade, in order to be the best that they possibly can. So when you see these wonderful suits that he's wearing, very often they're taped down, right? So, so that, know. Yeah, they're taped down so that they don't bunch up around his shoulders or around his arms. Are, are you conscious about your clothing? Do you, do you make no. a real effort to? No. You're, you're not this at all. Is, well, you see how I, this is how I normally dress. Sports t-shirt and a pair of jeans. That's, that's what I. Are you okay in a tie? Shirt and tie? It's not my, I mean, I, I obviously have to put one on for work, but I don't wear it otherwise. Are they your suits? No, no. They're TVOs. So you walk in and there's a whole rack of yes. them? Do you choose them? No. I, I, I would not, I could not possibly be responsible for picking things that match. <laughs> I'm also like that. <laughs> um, yeah. So have you studied interviewers? Oh, yeah, sure. Like whom? Well, I mean, I, first of all, I, I mean, I went to journalism school once upon a time. Right. Uh, I, I took additional courses even after I was already a so-called professional journalist. I took additional courses in how to do proper interviews. Yeah. And I watch a lot of current affairs. I watch and listen. So, yeah, I you try to take from those I like and try not to take from those who I think are not doing ha it well. Have you ever studied a Studs Turkle? Now, he's a print guy, right? So not Oh, so no, he's both. He's both. He is, eh? Yep. Okay. I've recently ensconced myself in really? him. Yes. Okay. You see I, that book right over there on the table? It's yes. Ca it's called Working. And it okay. is, it's a fascinating book. He went out and he interviewed individuals about their jobs. Okay. Postmen, fire people. What do we call them? Firefighters. Firefighters, prostitutes, priests, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he asked them, what's it like? How do you feel? What motivates you? Guys who work on the line, hmm. some of whom absolutely hate their job mm -hmm. every single day others who will say hey you know what i'm part of history here building this brand new car so um i've i myself have started studying interviewers and i find it a fascinating process uh, i don't mind saying one of the one of the few times i was nervous doing the agenda yeah 
was when Ted Koppel was a guest. Oh, I imagine. And that's because I grew up watching, flicking back and forth between Johnny Carson and Ted Koppel. Yeah. Watched them both for years and years and years. And Johnny Carson's a very underrated interviewer. He really was. And particularly in the earlier years, he had a lot of heavy-hitting intellectuals on his show, and he could go toe-to-toe with them. I've watched shows that he was interviewing Ayn Rand and you know people like this. And, of course, Koppel is kind of the gold standard for interviewing, uh, you know, in the last 30, 40 years. So to to have to interview Ted Koppel, knowing that he is no doubt thinking to himself, that's a stupid question, or I wonder if this is a good question. You know, he's, he's rating me as he's getting the questions coming in. That was a bit nerve-wracking. How did it go? I, I thought it went really well. I was really happy with it. Did he say anything to you? Um, well, first of all, he was on the satellite. Uh, he wasn't with me. So the opportunities for a lot of pre- and post-interview chit-chat were minimal. But I totally fessed up to him during the course of the interview that um, this this was a, a red-letter date in my life because yeah. I had, I think, learned a lot of my interviewing chops by watching him. And I, I had hoped that it was as good an experience for him uh, as it was for me. And um, I'm sure it wasn't. But he was kind enough to say that I did okay. I felt the same way about the interview today. Come on. Oh, yeah, I did. But you do this. Not like you. Not like you. And I'm, I'm not being humble. You're like, honestly, I, I'm really not because you're in my home either. You're, you're phenomenal at what you do. Phenomenal. I think you're great at it. I really do. Well, what does one say? Thank you. I, yeah. I, I mean, I've watched you, know, you so Can I tell you something? Every time I told people I'm interviewing Steve Pagan, they said, really? That, uh, good luck. I can't wait to hear it. Well, here's the dirty little secret. Yeah. When you've done probably 25,000 interviews, yeah. if you're not getting better after doing it 25,000 times, you probably ought to give up. So I'm still trying to get better at it. That's one of the things that motivates me to go out is, you know, I've done it enough now to hopefully understand what makes for a good interview, but I'm still trying to get better at it. And hopefully I will. I want to still get better at it. Apropos of that competitive stuff that you talked about earlier. So I felt that way about this interview, and I also look forward to when I interview somebody and someone says to me, man, that's a good question. You're a good interviewer. I love that. But you know what you've done? If I, I'm sorry, I'm going to hijack your interview a little bit. Please here. hijack because, away. Because what you do, which is so important, is that you set a tone and you set a, a, an, an environment here, and you're very natural yourself, right? Like you're just, you're just talking. Right. So that all contributes to a good interview. And you actually listen to the answers. I do. I do. And and can I tell you something? I don't know what the percentage is, but it wouldn't surprise me if 75% of the people who do interviews don't listen to the answers. Agreed. Which is nuts. How can you ask a question if you don't care what the answer is? Right. Uh, but you do, so that's all contributing, I hope, to a, a good conversation. Well, I mean, there's a pattern that exists within this interview and every other interview. You talk about ABC, and we talked about this a little bit before. And I hear ABC and I'll take C out of it, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. then I'll go right down the DEF road, right? And hopefully extrapolate something from that. As long as there's a thread, A. B, if it's a schmooze more than an interview, I think it goes a long way. Mark Marin from WTF, oh, yeah. he talks about, uh, Joe Rogan will say the same thing, that they don't interview. They schmooze. They just talk. Yeah, they, they schmooze. schmooze. Right. Which really is the essence of what Hat Radio is all about. Just have a phenomenal schmooze. Mm. That's why I love this interview today. 
good, authentic conversation yeah. is hard to find. It is, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, yeah. To so find a really good communicator. Kudos to you for yeah, getting it done. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. So, Stephen, I think we're, uh, we've covered the gamut. <laughs> <laughs> this is the longest and maybe most enjoyable interview I've ever done. Really? Well, um, how long have we been going for? An hour and a half. Really? Yeah. I can't believe, do you think anybody's still listening? Well, it's not live. <laughs> I know, but, but, but as they have downloaded yeah. this into their yeah. smartphones so, or whatever, do you, do, they, do you know whether people are still listening after an hour and a half? So here's how it works, okay? There are the people who listen to podcasts, and they are just tried and true. And they, they, they can do an hour and a half or two-hour show. Joe Rogan sometimes does three-hour shows, and they'll listen to the entire thing in its entirety if they have time. Some things will, sometimes people will break it up. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then there are other people who approach me. And they say, you know, Alvaram, really, you should do an interview in like 10 minutes. No, that's too short. Well, I, I'm not interested. Yeah. I'm not interested. Can't get anything in 10 L- minutes. Listen, at the end of this interview, I feel as though I feel as though I know you pretty well. Yeah, I, I think you do. Yeah. And I mean, we knew each other not badly before this interview, but Correct. certainly your good questions, I think, Thank have, you. have elicited answers to some things that I've never talked about before with, with other people. Thank you. And you have the... the you have the advantage of being able to go for a long time, which is good. I don't mind telling you, when I listen back to this, I'll probably listen at double speed because <laughs> right, I listen to right. almost. I listen to all right. my podcasts double speed. Yeah. Um, and I know I, we do a show on podcasts on the agenda at least once a year. Yes. And the when I when I sort of fess up to people that I listen at double speed, people who have podcasts. They hate me for it. <laughs> Do that? they say, you're missing all the nuance and all of the this and all of the that. And yeah. I say, yeah, but I can listen to twice as many things if I play it at double speed. I don't know. Do, you but think, do people say that to you? They, they listen at double speed so they can... That I haven't heard. They can do 90 minutes and 45? <laughs> no, no, that I haven't heard. No, no, no. Well, maybe they are. I'm not sure people want to uh, hear my voice as if I were a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I really want to thank you for doing this. I had such a good time. I enjoyed it so much. I'm glad. You're very, you're very vivacious. You're well, full of life, and I love that. You've asked a lot of questions about stuff that, that I happen to like talking about, and no one's asked me about before. They haven't? No. I did. I, I looked around for some interviews that have been done with you, one of which was Bob Ray, and we talked about that. The other one where you interviewed yourself, but it's very clear is that you're, you're the guy who questions. And, yeah, there's not a lot out there of you being interviewed. I, I find I don't learn that much when other people interview me. Yeah. So I don't do it very much. Did I, you learn something here? I don't know. Yeah. I got to think about it. I, I'll, yeah. you know what? I'd, I'd want to go back and listen to it. Did I learn something here? I'd want to go back and, and uh, listen to it and think about it. I so, think when you're in the moment, it's hard to analyze. I will tell you one thing. Um, you're a very humble guy. Very humble guy. You know why? No, why? My father once said to me, "Son, always be humble." And luckily for you, you have a lot to be humble about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. My dad said the same thing. Same generation. Um, but I will tell you from my perspective and from many other people's perspective you have done a lot for this province and i would argue this this country you really have when you go on the air you're intellectual in nature uh you're thoughtful you're decent you are you're decent you're caring you take care of people on your show you don't try to undermine them there's none of the none of this sort of yellow journalism i got you stuff you don't do that it's not our style. No, not at all. No. And I tell you something, my belief is, and I wonder if you share this, I think people are sick of that. Well, if they want it, they certainly have enough other places in which to find it. They do. If they want something a little more thoughtful, they'll they'll pick your podcast, they'll pick hopefully our program. 
So there you go. So uh, in in a time where uh, gray is no longer gray, everything is black and white, as the, the statement I just made, um, <laughs> you bring gray to our world. Yeah, you offer possibilities. And I think that is so needed. Life is gray. Yes, it is. Life, issues, subjects. Yes. There's not much black and white out there. Yeah, There's I agree. There's a lot of shades of gray. And, and in fact, the, the, the most... Uh, the, the color you'll find the most in nature is gray, in fact. So gray is kind of inherent to our existence. I want to tell you two things before we sign off. I think, I think you'll like this. Um, number one is that I was having an argument with a home, homeless fellow, a fellow who lived outside. I got very, very upset with him because I'd been trying to help him out for many years uh, by giving him money. And he started to yell at me and he started to get very obstreperous. Um, and there's a line that we all draw. Do, do you have a homeless friend? A lot of people seem to know one particular homeless person. You know, I put it this way. There used to be a guy outside. I think they called it the Pantages. Pantages Theater? Yeah. yeah. Whatever it's called. The Ed Mervish Theater now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His name was Moses. And I used to see him out there. And he was a homeless guy. I used to see him out there. And if I was fortunate enough to go to a show there. I'd see him on the way out, conversation with him, leave him a couple of shekels, whatever. We did your thing. My daughter and I did your thing. We you did, went out on our van. We went out on the van. To help we the homeless. We did one last year, and, and we're doing it again in a few weeks. We got we signed up again. How was it? Uh, illuminating in a major way, particularly for a teenage girl. Yeah. You know, who who just doesn't see much of that in her regular daily life. And she and she enjoyed doing it so much, and the... The notion that she was helping others, that uh, she said, I want to do it again. So we're doing it again. You were very proud of her, I imagine. I'm proud of her all the time anyway. Yeah. But I'm glad she had that reaction to it. Yeah. Yeah. So I felt really badly that we had. You felt bad that you had the fight with. Yeah. Firstly, I don't want want, uh, anger in my world, in my life. And I don't want to be angry with anybody. And I want them to be angry with me. That, that, That keeps me up at night when people are angry with me. And yesterday I was over in the parking lot uh, where I see him all the time. And he came over to me and apologized. And my whole perspective of him changed in that moment. You know, I was telling my son, oh, we're not going to give him money anymore, yada, yada, yada. And, he, you know, my son's 12 years old. God willing, tomorrow he'll be 13. And he said, no, no, daddy, you have to speak to him. You got to clear this up. I said, you're right. Thank you. And I did. And yeah, I said to him, I said, you are a fine man. You are a fine man for apologizing, and I appreciate it. And I, too, apologize for my behavior. And it was a really nice moment. Isn't that great? Yeah, it was a lot lovely. Of, a lot of wisdom there it, on it, both yeah. sides. Yeah, you learn, you learn a lot from that. And then the second thing that I wanted to tell you is my sister just told me that she's down in Miami. You ever go to Miami? My folks spend the winters there. So oh, do we, they? We go down and visit them every year. Yeah? You enjoy it there? I've only been about 55 times, so yes, I do you get, enjoy it there. You're getting to know the place, are you? <laughs> yeah. So my sister said, you know what? I saw the woman who was cleaning up my room, and I felt really badly for her. And my sister's a, a very fine soul, very fine soul. And uh, I really, I, I felt as though I wanted to leave her something. You know, we often have these feelings, right? So my nephew says to her, he says, Mom, why don't you leave her your shoes? She said, what do you mean? He goes, I do that all the time. She says, you do? She, he goes, yeah, yeah. Whenever I leave my hotel room, and he travels a lot, 
He said, I'll leave a, a, a nice pair of shoes. And he has nice stuff. How old a guy is he? Uh, he's about 30. Okay. And he says, then I'll leave it for the person who's cleaning or for the person who, whatever they do, like someone who works there. And my sister said to him, really? That's what you do? She goes, he goes, yeah, I've been doing it for a long time. Isn't that interesting? It, I've never heard that isn't before. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. I've never heard it before either. Yeah. So I wanted to share that with you. I thought that would be a nice way to go out of the show, you know? <laughs> That's fascinating. Can you think of any nuances in life like that, these sort of quiet acts of kindness or goodness? I remember, Anything come to mind? I remember, it's funny, when you said that, Yeah. I remember Ted Kennedy's funeral. Oh, yeah. And his son, Teddy Kennedy Jr., got up and gave the eulogy and gave a very similar example of how, I guess, the two of them were having a conversation about the woman who cleaned up their hotel room at a particular time. And as they were leaving, Ted Jr. saw his father, the senator, pull a $20 bill out of his wallet and just leave it on the, you know, beside the television set. Yes. And and looked at his son and said, these people work very hard to yeah. make our lives a little more comfortable. So, and that was, that was it. That's all he said. And, um, you know, message delivered. These go a long way, especially when you're raising children. Yeah. Yeah. So listen, thank you for doing the hey, show. Happy birthday to your kid. Yeah, thank you. When's the bar mitzvah? The bar mitzvah is on May 11th. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, okay. we're really excited about it. You can come if you like. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, Congratulations it, it, to all. It's going to be beautiful. I'm sure it's it will. Gonna, you made a few will. bar mitzvahs, no? Uh, did my own. Three boys. Yeah, yeah, I guess I've done a few. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like I said, I've really enjoyed this, and thank you for being on the show. It was my pleasure. And I, I wish you so all... much time with you. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, Steve, and all kinds of luck to you and uh, health and happiness to your family. Amen to you yeah, too. Yeah, amen. So thank you to all of our listeners as well. Uh, you have been listening to Hat Radio, and we say it's the show that schmoozes. You like that? Sure. Yeah, why not? The show that schmoozes, <laughs> and we look forward to being back. God bless. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned, keeping the flame of faith burning. I want to know where you've been, what you found out. Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the hat In the hat